Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. Along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, we have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live interviews professionals in the movement field who have a variety of experiences, education, and professional titles. At the end of the day, we all want to move more, and we want our patients, athletes, or clients to move more or move better more efficiently, or move with less pain. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise professions. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. Each Moving to Live interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single listen, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. Before we get to the interview, a quick request. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who understands that movement is a lifestyle. We appreciate it, and our guests appreciate it too. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live, where our ethos, along with our sister podcast, is movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. For those of you who've listened to Moving to Live before, you know we try to interview movement professionals, I can say today, literally across the world, where it's like a 12 or 13 hour time difference with today's guest. We want to find out their story. How did they get to where they are and what do they do? Because very often in this field, there is that area of silo knowledge where people only talk to other people who either make them feel comfortable or who are in their expertise. Because at the end of the day, you never know who you can learn from. And by learning from people who are in the same type of field, but maybe slightly different, you can learn a lot. I'm not sure how I connected with uh, tonight's guest. I know that I had the opportunity to be on his podcast. Great time. I am talking tonight with Matty Lansdowne. He is from Australia, and his podcast is How to Not Get Sick and Die, which I think in the middle of, at least in the United States, COVID and people not sure what's going on with cold and flu season, that's really appropriate topic. So, Matty, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Hey, Ben. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to chat. We try to do audiograms when we start promoting the podcast. And one of the things I found that I do just uh, innately is my first question I always ask podcasters is you're stuck in an elevator, you're standing in line at a coffee shop and you've got a, a t-shirt on or something something on and somebody says, you know, what do you do? What's your 30 second uh, spiel? This is Maddie Lansdowne and this is what I do. <laughs> oh, oh, well, as a fellow podcaster, you'd understand that nailing a, you know, a 30 second monologue is very a small time frame for me. But, um, but basically, I help uh, people lose weight, uh, clear their brain fog and get more energy. And in the process of that, um, often help people with their gut health. And eventually, as we were talking about before, eventually move their digestion better and move their body better so they can spend time doing what they want to do rather than just, you know, suffering in pain and, and not being able to eat the things they want to eat and, and just, you know, living in a slumber. And I know I'd be remiss not to ask this. You're in Australia. I'm in the United States. It seems every guest that I interview from either uh, Europe or Australia or New Zealand, they talk about Americans and they talk about the amount of food that we have in our food servings and it just blows their mind. Uh, have you had the opportunity to travel to America or talk to friends who have and have you found the same thing or have they found the same thing? Yeah, I've been to America a few times now, and I remember the first time I ever got off the at LAX airport um, uh, in Los Angeles, and the first thing I noticed was that instantly the air smelt deep fried. And I was like, firstly, that is 
what I expected, but also confronting. <laughs> um, and yeah, then meal sizes. So um, I was sort of, you know, old enough to be on my health journey and a health professional at that point. So I, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this for the experience once or twice, but uh, beyond that, I'm going to find just an equally sized salad. But yeah, I did find the, the meal servings to be absolutely monstrous, which kind of goes hand in hand with what the rest of the world perceives Americans to be in every way, which is just big, bold, and, you know, just full on. <laughs> and here in America, I'll probably insult some people with this. Here in America, that's the way we think Texans are. So, you know, yeah, right. each, each group of people has that. I know a number of Texans that, that I, I'm very fond of. So I, I, one of the things that I really love about doing with Moving to Live is obviously learning more about what people do professionally, but how they started out. And I know from being on your podcast and our chatting before and after, you were one of those people who you started out, you were active as a kid and you were pretty much or were an elite athlete at some point. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your journey there, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I guess, so I'm in Melbourne, so that's one of Australia's major cities. And But I didn't grow up in the city. I grew up in the countryside um, in a typical Aussie country family. And uh, spent most of my youth on my bicycle, bouncing between my friends' houses and the the local bush. Like there's obviously lots lots of bushland in Australia, and the bush was just a, sort of a couple of houses away. And I spent a lot of my teenage years and youth, uh, you know, in in the ponds, yabbying, running around building cubby houses in the tree plantations for the paper mill uh, where my dad worked. And so like that was just life. Like life was on the bike, and and mum and dad were very much you know get outside kind of people. I wasn't allowed to watch very much TV growing up, um, which I, at the time, totally despised my parents for. But because, uh, you know, I'd get to school and everybody would be chatting about whatever show they'd been watching and I felt super uncool. But, um, I, but yeah, I was always active, fortunately, because of my parents. And we had a big, we lived on a, a fairly big property as well. Um, when I was younger. So just lots of, lots of space to move, you know, and, and it was a very, very active family in the sense that not sport, but, uh, per se, but you know, like everybody would get on and in on renovating the house or digging out the backyard to, you know, which it was a couple of year project in order to put the back porch on, you know, and we moved tons of dirt and it was just, you know, if it needed doing, you just did it kind of mentality, um, which I'm really grateful for my parents gifting to me that, that kind of approach to life, um, you know, do it yourself type thing. And, uh, from there, like I got into sport at a really young age. So I started off, um, I think baseball was the first sport that I played, um, which in Australia is very rare. It's a very, very small, uh, small field of sport in Australia. And to the point, actually, a few years ago, um, they did the world, the opening of the world championships in Sydney. Um, and I think I forget who it was between, but my parents, uh, like we all went up there cause we spent so many years in the baseball industry in Australia and they had Australia's best players play against the, the best players from America. And the, the dollar value was that it was about $250,000 worth of Australian players playing against $250 million worth of players, same number of players. So, you know, baseball's not big in Australia, but I played baseball for um, about nine years and, and my dad got, you know, ended up being the secretary of the baseball club and he ended up started, started playing baseball as well. And I got to state level for that, which obviously in Australia is not super impressive, <laughs> but... Um, 
But that's where I began. And then from there, I sort of uh, moved across to swimming. Um, and that was just kind of a natural evolution because, you know, in Australia, you know, it's a very much a beach lifestyle kind of thing. Not that I grew up near a beach, but it was just everybody just learns to swim at a super young age. Um, and then you spend the summer in, at the beach, right? So um, the natural progression, then I just finished swim lessons at like nine or 10, and then moved into swimming club. And from there, yeah, I sort of progressed from, you know, training two or three times a week, which again, for me, was just a social, social event. Like I was just like, get to hang out with a heap of cool people and we just swim up and down. Like, and then, you know, on the, some weekends we go and do competitions and it was, I just loved it because there's just people everywhere. Um, and then I eventually started to sort of mature into my, you know, adolescent body and get a bit of muscle. And I started doing all right at swimming and I started progressing then to four or five times a week to seven times a week training to 10. And I think at my peak, it was sort of 12, 12 to 14 times a week training for swimming and, 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 uh, you know, doing States world championships, um, national swimming, all of these kinds of events. Um, it was, it was full on, like it was crazy. And still, I was still a teenager at this and, I, and I've got my coach in my ear right now who was always saying, Matthew, stop, get off the end of the lane and stop talking. Like I was always, it was just always a big social event for me. Like I just loved it. And I probably could have done better if I was less interested in, you know, chatting to, to the girls in the, the, the lane next door. But, but yeah, I got to a fairly decent level without really me meaning to, which might sound a little ostentatious, but I was just, I was just enthusiastic rather than, you know, super, super hardcore about it. Um, and when, it, yeah, I guess being raised with my parents being like, if something needs to be done, do it. I sort of just naturally, it didn't seem like work to be like, oh, well, I, I don't feel tired. I could swim. So do it. Like, you know, so that was the approach I took. Um, and then, yeah, I got, I sort of got to the point where it was a decision between do I aim for, you know, worlds and, and olympics and commonwealth games or do i focus on my high school education and because i wasn't super hardcore i ended up going with the the high school education which i don't know if i regret but um but yeah i spent a lot of my t my teenage years drenched in chlorine going back and forward doing 5 10 20 k's a week <laughs> i'm curious because i I've, I've known a lot of fairly good swimmers a few olympians very few of them still swim as somebody who swam as many as 14 times a week. Do you, <laughs> yeah. still, do you still swim? And I don't mean going to the beach and paddling out of the surf, but actually swim for fitness or swim for competition in masters. Well, one, one of the things that's good about spending that long as a teenager swimming, and fortunately my metabolism stayed with me. And what I mean by that is that once all, once the group of people that I went through, uh, you know, swimming with stopped, a, a lot of people eat like that are that intense with their sport, they blow out, like they gain 10, 20, 30, 40 kilograms. And I was very fortunate. My, meta my, my metabolism stayed with the lifestyle that I progressed into. And so I'm very lucky to say that most days of the week, I can jump in a pool and do the national time for like sort of the 100 meter freestyle, 100 meter backstroke. I'm very lucky. And I can't, and then I can't swim for like a week after that. But, um, <laughs> but, but every year when, when there's usually world championships are on or something like that or qualifying, and there might be someone that I still know around, I'm like, all right, actually, you know what? I can get back into this. I can do this and I'm motivated and I'll go down and I'll swim and then I'll not be able to walk for two days. <laughs> it sounds like your d decision to go to, or to concentrate in the high school as opposed to saying, okay, I'm going to see, can I make it to the Commonwealth Games to the Olympics? <laughs> it, it sounds like that was along with your swimming career was, was a 
healthy type of thing that your parents didn't say, Matthew, you have to do this. It was just kind of organically developed and kind of your decision along those same lines was kind of like, well, I could do this or I can do that as opposed to having it, uh, for lack of a better term, ripped from you because all of a sudden you realized, oh, I'm not good enough to go to the next level. Everything I've worked for is done. And it, it, it seems that that, sh- that that shows through in, in the way you tell the story. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, when you just uh, sort of talking about that there, it reminded me of being like, I've got these memories, these flashbacks to when we're poolside, you know, the whole team set up, we've got the, the, the marquee set up where everybody sits under and, and these, and swim mates are like all day, all weekend, half week, full week events, like they're huge. And I remember so many times being at country championships or national championships or state championships and I'd finish my race and I might be, you know, might've got fourth or fifth or sixth or whatever. I'd be a bit down for about half an hour. I'd be like, oh, you know, I should have put more effort in. <laughs> uh, and then I rem- distinctly remember the other, you know, boys my age or teenage boys my age crying, being scolded by their parents. Like, you know, they could have got bronze, bronze medal. And, you know, their parents were just yelling and screaming, like, no shame, like just hammering them. So I'm so grateful. I remember thinking like, you know, what is going on over there? For me, it was just all big, a big, big bit of fun, you know, it was social and there was all these people around all the time. And it was, you know, in the relays, I used to love the relays, of course, because I'm super social. And I was a part of a few relay teams that did exceptionally well at country championships and stuff. So, um, you know, it's always good, but just to, it, it shocked me as a teenager. And, and I realized that a lot of people, you know, these, a lot of these swimmers and, and, elite athletes and uh, people that are prodigies, you know, in any field are often victim to these savage parents and these horrible home environments that are just ruthless, you know? And so I'm very grateful that my parents were not like that. So you, you, you finish the swimming career, you go on to high school, you go to university. How do you get into what you're doing now? In addition to podcasting, you gave a really nice and you did a better job than me of holding it to around 30 seconds. <laughs> you know, how do you go from, and I'm saying this again, jokingly, ex-swimmer to somebody who's helping people who from talking to you, I know um, you think very similarly to me in the fact that you don't necessarily have to be an athlete to move, to have a quality of life, to, you know, have, have a positive outlook and, and to be healthy, even though we're kind of taught in, uh, you know, first world society, it's like, well, you know, you're getting older, you can't expect that you can't expect to feel the way that you, you felt when you were 20. So how did how did that transition out? I, I don't know exactly how high school to college works in Australia. I know you have a different PhD program than we have here in the US where you're predominantly research. But how does it work from high school, high school to college as far as the path that you took to get where you are now? Yeah, so I guess, as I said before, I grew up in a small town and and apart from the movement career, I also had another movement career that I was super passionate about, um, which I've been a session musician as a drummer for like 17 years now. And so um, I realized when I had that question in front of me, education or um, sport, and I chose the education, not passionately, by the way, I was just like, oh, I guess... I guess I'll do that, you know, sort of thing. But I realized in that moment, I've been playing drums for a couple of years and I realized, oh, music is something that I can get better at forever. 
Like, and I, and I realized sport, my peak was in the next two years if I was to seriously have a crack at it. And then I'd just be miserable forever because I could never get back to being 22-year-old me. Um, and then I just had this epiphany. And so from, th- from there, I applied, uh, applied for university, so finishing high school, and I applied for music and a bunch of other uh, degrees just because I had to. I didn't, I wasn't, I was just like, oh, you know, I don't know if uni's for me, <laughs> I'll... I'll see what see what happens, um, and I applied for all of these different degrees, and I got into music, and I got into uh, forensic science and a number of science degrees, and I was like, oh wow, I, I didn't expect this. And so, growing up in a small family in a small town, not really knowing any musicians, I'd be like, I was kind of like, why would I go to university to study drumming? I can just do drumming anyway. Um, so, and I, I just had no sort of information about why I would do that. So I chose the science uh, because it sounded interesting, and I could still do music, which was amazing so my drums have been carted everywhere with me through my life and I've done been you know lucky to do lots of amazing things with music as well um big gigs small gigs different countries etc but I yeah moved away from home to go to university to study science um and and from there I just started getting interested in the world because one of the interesting things where the movement comes into it is as I'm learning science and and sort of I ended up becoming a molecular biologist was that at this time I'm living with the strength and conditioning coaches of the Geelong Cats. Now the Geelong Cats in Australia are virtually one of the most elite uh, AFL Australian Football League teams in the country. Um, and so I was doing my as I was doing uni, I was living with the strength and conditioning coaches and um, I realized when I first moved in with these guys, they're a few years older than me. So they were, they were the perfect sort of role models. They were, I was in uni, they were sort of five or six years post uni. Um, and they were just, a, just that little bit ahead that they really just led the way and showed the way in a really fun kind of way. And we would have elite athletes at our house every single day, basketballers, Olympics, uh, swimmers, uh, uh, sprinters, you know, marathon runners, because we they ran a gym out of our house as well and I just became a part of this life like it was just like it was very masculine you know competitive but it was more as well it was kind of overall just like you, you come to this house just to work out and everybody has fun just working out whatever your ability is you know and everybody naturally just gets stronger and so it was at this point that I realized my university diet, which was really not good because it was very cheap and it was all of the horrible things, you know, that people put into their bodies at uni, which is, you know, beer, pasta, rice and bread, you know, all the white stuff. And I would spend as little as I could on that to save more for the beer. Um, and then I moved in with the strength and conditioning coaches and I was like, wow, these guys are literally photoshopped like every day. You know, their bodies are amazing. They're able to achieve all sorts of amazing things just as they're they're normal. That's just their baseline. Um, And I started realizing that nutrition really, really impacted the body. And and I guess I was raised in a typical way. And even in my science degree, they don't talk about, and, and, you know, I had a lot of, I did a lot of medical lectures and medical subjects. And in none of those subjects, do they ever talk about the impact of food on the body um, ever. And, and, and and since then, I've obviously worked in a hospital for the better part of 10 years and in, in chronic disease research. And still they don't talk about food. Um, And then, but it was in this house at uni that I realized Food is so impactful on the body and this, and that's because, you know, every time that they wanted a different uh, outcome out of their body or one of the the athletes that would come over um, or the team was going through a different strength phase, they would change the diet first. That would be the go-to. The gym routine would change as well, but that would be second. Um, And then I was lucky enough to go along to supplement lectures at the club, at the um, Geelong Cats footy club. 
And then all of these different education things. And I really started being like, oh my God, food is like everything. Um, and so I went on to do uh, my honors in nutritional epigenetics, which is you know, sort of how nutrition affects the way that DNA switches on and off and our meta- affects our metabolism. Um, and so that kind of led me down a path. And then I worked in, uh, then I've worked in hospital and chronic disease, which was an unexpected uh, job working in, in a part of a cancer research team. And it was here that I really got fired up because I, I sort of walked in with no real ego, kind of how I went about swimming, you know, just like, I'm just here to see what happens, you know. Um, and I started getting really passionate about it because I started realizing that r- remembering my foundations of like food changes the body and and then looking on the World Health Organization website where they list in the top three causes of cancer is diet and lifestyle and being in a cancer hospital and like, no one's talking about diet and lifestyle. These are the two biggest causes. And then I started just observing what was happening sort of more in more detail. And it was like, once you, the door at the front is just a rotating door. You're like, once you come in, you go out, you come in, you come in, you go out. And I realized that the problem causing cancer and diabetes and Alzheimer's and pick your chronic disease happens outside the hospital. And if and we're not fixing the bit that's outside the hospital, then of course they're going to come back. Of course everybody relapses because they haven't fixed the cause. And then I had this epiphany that, you know, doctors don't get nutrition education despite the fact that all of society is meant to look at medical doctors as masters of biology. What's one thing we do every single day, six, well, in America, up to 11 times a day, we put food into our biology. Doctors don't know anything about food. And and to me, that's like, that's like a mechanic saying, well, we've got petrol and we've got water and they both seem to be a liquid they both should run the car right or you know and that's 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 the way i see it and especially when you know um you know what people in hospital get fed you're like clearly they don't think the fuel source is appropriate or or, or relevant rather and so this just got me super fired up like that i was like we know like the world health organization knows that diet and lifestyle causes disease all the major chronic diseases and we're doing nothing about it. And so this led me down the path of doing my own research into alternative medicine, medical modalities, um, and all of these other things. But it came like from the foundation of knowing that my housemates, when they wanted something more from their body or to change an outcome, they changed the diet. And that, that's where it really began. Uh, and I just blew my mind. And then I became a nutritional therapist um, and now sort of work with Melbourne Functional Medicine, helping people, you know, again, with the cause, the cause of their problems. Um, and it's often, on their plate, which as we were talking about before we sort of hit record, all ends up with them wanting to move more in their, you know, in their life to experience their life so that they can, you know, not be sitting at home suffering all of the time. So it's kind of a round of, you know, it's a few roundabouts in that story, but that's essentially how I got from swimmer all the way to where I'm at now. <laughs> we're talking with Maddie Lansdowne from Australia. I think it's interesting that you use the mechanics analogy with petrol because one of the things I've said to my dad numerous times that hopefully he's getting along, getting the idea more is people spend more time looking for a mechanic for their car than they do looking for a physician. And I mean, I know one of the, one of the messages my parents gave me when I first started interviewing for jobs, you know, way back when I was in high school is look, when you go for a job interview, it's not just them interviewing you, it's you interviewing them to see if you want to work for them. And I I look at it the same way. Uh, with physicians. I mean, you you are, and this is no knock on physician friends of mine, because t- to some extent, they're constrained by the medical system. But there's also there are some good gems out there. But you can't just, you know, 
run run your finger down the, the Google search engine and say, oh, this will be a good one. You know? <laughs> and it's it's a, actually when you said that, uh, one of the things that I did or one of the positive things that's, that's come from this pandemic as I was thinking of doing it is I have a physician that I pay for out of pocket for a general practice physician. It's He doesn't want to call it a concierge because it's, it's much more approachable, but you pay a specific fee to be able to see him. And I remember when I first heard about it, I knew about it. You know, I, I knew about that medical model and I scheduled an appointment just to go in and talk to him because I wanted to make sure that it was a good fit. And it really, you know, it's been about eight months and it's it's phenomenal. And I think it's interesting that what I see or, or what friends of mine see in the United States as being a problem is a problem, not only here, but also literally all the way around the world. Yeah. And as you said, they're often constrained. There's lots of great doctors. I've never worked with a bad doctor. Like I spent a long time in hospitals um, and I've never met a bad doctor that had any ill intent. They're all part of the system that was created well before we were all born. And, and you know, the, there's rules and regulations. And, and I've, I know people that have been fined like big numbers of, of, of for doing things that are outside their, their scope you know, which is giving the person, finding a symptom and, symptom and giving a drug. And if you help someone with the nutrition to lose weight or get off insulin medication, you're instantly as a doctor outside your scope and you can be fined for, for stuff like that. And so, yeah, I think, I think that that's really important to say that there's, I've never met a, an ill intended doctor ever. Um, and they're all just victims to the framework in which they work. I know there's there's a growing number here in the United States who are going outside the system and doing cash based so they can integrate other things into it. I'm curious with uh, when you first started recognizing this when working in chronic disease, how did you seek out functional medicine physicians? I mean, how did were you aware of that before, or were you talking to somebody uh, in the lab and they said, "Hey, you know, this is another way of approaching these problems with a, a physician who's using his knowledge or the, or her knowledge." in a slightly different way than you would traditionally see? I started just on YouTube. So uh, like if, if we go back 10 years, t like 10 years ago, me would be looking at me now and being like, Maddie, you are a crazy hippie. Like I was a hardcore Western medical scientist. Mum was a nurse. I used to go to the hospital with mum as daycare when I was a child. So I was, you know, I was indoctrinated as, as a young age that Western medicine and allopathic treatments were the holy grail and anything else was woo-woo nonsense. And, and so it took me a lot of my own homework about just learning about the, the structure of Western medicine, where it came from, how it was founded, what the principles it was founded on, what happened in that process, and then to look into other medical modalities and be like, okay, let's just see what else is out there. If if I've I've just had this epiphany that I've, I'm looking at the world one way, like I'm a part of this group of people in society, which is most, and I'm looking at the whole you know body in one way, which is this way. And so I was like, all right, let's look at some other opinions. And I found traditional Chinese medicine, which has approximately 10,000 years of practice and experience. And there's plenty of Chinese people in the world. Like it clearly, you know, isn't the worst thing. Uh, like, and then I looked into Ayurveda, Indian medicine, another country that's populated with over a billion people, you know, and they still use it today, which is, again, it's a, it's a holistic approach. It factors in your emotions. It factors in relationships that the meals you're eating, the mantra of Ayurveda is often meals as medicine, right? So, um, you know, because they know intimately and, and Ayurveda is about 6,500 years old. And so I start, I just started looking into all these other medical modalities that had 
far more, you know, history and practice than we do with Western medicine, which is not to say Western medicine isn't amazing and doesn't have its place. It absolutely does in emergency acute medicine and helps a very, very small percentage of chronic disease sufferers. But these other modalities that had been in very many places literally outlawed because they were a competing business. Like literally, they were like, no, we're going to, we're going to outlaw that. We're going to make it illegal. Um, you're not allowed to do X, Y, Z. And so it was through this research phase that I went sort of outside of my own scope. Let's say as a science researcher, as a disease researcher, I started learning about all these other things. Then I started realizing that people were integrating these types of practices from Chinese medicine, from, um, you know, African heritage, from uh, Egyptian medicine, Babylonian, all this kind of stuff. They were integrating it into Western medicine and calling it functional medicine because it was about the functions that we do every single day. And, and then from there, I started really, you know, getting familiar with the term functional medicine and naturopathy, uh, which pulls on all of these different sort of, you know, natural healing modalities as well as modern science. And that's where it's, that's where the magic really happens is using modern science and supplementation along with all of these traditional health values about and ways of looking at the body and, and there's a for everybody this they fall somewhere different on the spectrum but there's a nice junction between conventional medicine and you know alternative uh integrative medicine as well so i just did this long drawn out research process of primarily convincing myself the other important detail in that story is that the is is Emily. So Emily's my, been my partner for most of my adult life, and she actually is a clinical nurse specialist at the Royal Women's Hospital uh, here in Melbourne. And so our hospitals are pretty much next door to each other. And she herself actually had two to three, well, three in the beginning, incurable diseases. Um, and she, so as I was going on this journey, sort of in my own world, and just putting being like patients are not getting better, like they come here to die essentially. She was in a situation where she, with her health and had been many, many years before I met her where the more drugs she was given, the worse the problem got. And she ended up um, eliminating one of those diseases and massively reducing the impact of the other two after going on a very long journey through alternative medical practitioners, detoxing from all of the drugs she'd been on for a long time. And now is doesn't take any pharmaceuticals. Her health is the best it's ever been. You would never be able to tell that there's ever been a single problem in her life health-wise. And so these, these two journeys were happening concurrently. So I was watching somebody I loved go through this and, you know, ha having to find the courage to sort of stand up and say, I'm not going to do this anymore to, to doctors and surgeons that all, you know, thought she was an idiot. And she, like me, we also were working in the, in, in the Western medical model. So it was really confusing. So together we, we did so much research and now our lives are just, you know, full of all of this different research that's just not presented to people. And again, that doctor that's outside the doctor's scope. And so now, as you mentioned, functional medicine, it's kind of everywhere now, which is great. People are getting additional qualifications. And, and so, you know, I think it's a, the future is looking good because people are starting to incorporate all of these different things. So, so, but that was the kind of journey that I was sort of watched Emily at the same time of, as watching the patients on the clinical trials that I was a part of. And just, just like, there's got to be a better answer. So, <laughs> I have to ask. You mentioned uh, a little bit earlier that your mom's a nurse. What has what has her uh, thought process? What what is her uh, what has she shared with you as, as you've gone down this journey? Since it's a different way of looking at things, and I think I think what you have put together, whether you've realized it or not, is, is something is is a health model where you basically have a toolbox, and all of these different things are tools, 
And I think the key thing that whether you realize it or not, you've done is you've been very proactive rather than just sitting back and saying, oh, well, you're the expert. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. You've been, which I, I want to get into more, but first I want to find out what, what's your mom's attitude been towards this? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I didn't realize until I went on this journey, or maybe I realized about five years ago now, but that when I was younger, my mom actually took my sister and I, when we had some, some problems, we would go to the doctor, but she also used to take us to chiropractors. She also used to take us to naturopaths. And I just had blanked that out of my mind totally. Like after we started swimming, my sister swam as well. Like we, the chlorine caused some kind of weird all over body rash and no one could figure it out. Um, all this, all these creams and different things and ended up being with a chiropractor who put us on a dairy free, gluten or grain free, um, diet and sugar free. And that literally made it go away forever. Like it never came back. And then I just had this epiphany a while ago and I was like, Oh my God, that she treated us that way. And now I treat people using similar types of things. And when I was actually born, I was born with an all over body severe eczema. Um, and, uh, I like, I obviously don't remember this, but, um, that mum tried steroid creams and the doctors tried all sorts of injections and different things, uh, and nothing worked. But mum, a couple of years before I was born had actually done an aromatherapy course with essential oils. Um, and so she made up some concoction at home, which the base oil was almond oil and she lathered me up every day for however long and it disappeared and never came back ever. And all the steroid creams that they were trying to use, nothing worked. So it was just interesting that mum, for, for a few years there, I mirrored my mum in the sense that I was working in an establishment that I was not utilizing as my own solution. You know, she took us to these alternative practitioners that solved our problems, despite going to work every day, offering people the alternative that she may or may not believe in. But, um, you know, she and she works in a clinic now. But yeah, that's so my mum is very uh, kind of exposed me to it without me kind of realizing in the beginning. <laughs> and when you're telling this story about your mom, I'm, re I'm reminded to, a few minutes ago when we were recording, you said you were kind of a hippie. You maybe grew up with, <laughs> with a hippie for a mother. And I'm saying this in a positive way because she was willing to say, OK, maybe this doesn't work. Let's try something else, which I think many parents would go, oh my God, you know, the doctor said we need to put the steroid cream on, you know, I can't ask him, why are we doing this? Or how long do we, are we doing this? Because he or she is the doctor and they're the expert. And I, and I think uh, one of the things I found with those couple of functional medicine physicians that I've talked to and the people who maybe are slightly outside the norm in the medical field is the best ones are the ones who have the trade of number one you can ask them a question and they're not threatened by it. And number two, I may have told this story when uh, I was interviewed on, on your podcast, but I've had a number of retinal problems due to structural problems. And I still remember my retinal surgeon saying, we need to do this procedure in the office today. Let me see if my colleagues here, because I can do it, but he can do it even better. And I think one of the things that I've seen with functional medicine physicians who've gone that path is they looked at the traditional model and they said, this isn't working for enough of my patients. What can I do differently? When you get clients or patients, I'm not sure what you call them because I know it's different in each, in each country as far as what you can call them uh, legally. But when you get them, I guess my first question is, do they find you as, oh, this is somebody who can help me? Or do they kind of come in more often skeptical? It's like, well, you know, nothing else has worked. I'll give this, uh, this woo-woo stuff a, 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 a check out. I would say most people have gone that that path, which is that 
yeah, what they know to be true. And, and we all behave from our belief systems, right? Now, belief systems are often often given us to us by our parents or our parental figures um, when we're younger. And so we hold these beliefs throughout all of our lives and we get to a point eventually, especially, you know, people in their, their midlife or later life where it's like, I've been trying to solve this problem for so long, maybe... I, my belief about how it should be solved is the problem. Like maybe I should actually branch out and try this other ridiculous nonsense that, that you know, Maddie keeps talking about or, or whoever, you know. Um, and, and a lot of people, yeah, they're out of solutions. Like a lot of people reach me by the time they're on their fourth relapse, you know, um, and, and it's, and they're like, and, and often they reach me too late because it took too many attempts at their first belief system and, you know, their body's depleted, their immune system's knackered. Uh, and they're like, oh, they're finally ready to talk to my friend, Maddie, who talks about things a little differently kind of thing. So, um, yeah, a lot of people sort of come from that standpoint. However, I find that it, by the time they're there, by the time they're knocking on the door, they're ready. They're ready to try. Like, they're like, you know what? that didn't work. I want something to work. Let's go. You know, like I think there's, there's definitely a demographic of people that don't want to get better. Um, I I believe it's a small demographic, but a lot of people are in, in, and Western medicine facilitates a a victim mindset, which is, you know, something that sort of drives me a bit crazy because, uh, and I think we spoke about this before we jumped on and hit record was that, you know, something that lacks when you see a doctor is the behavioral component and, and the emotional component. And there's very few people that don't want to get well, that don't want to lose, you know, I guess most of your listeners are American, right? A hundred pounds or, or 50 pounds or, you know, whatever it is for them. There's very few people that don't want that to happen. It, like, and weight loss for the most part is a very easy equation, but it's why, why don't people do it? And it comes down to their beliefs and their behaviors. And, and you got to be able to work with that and support that. And I think that's the bit that's missing for a lot of people is that they don't have the emotional support um, to, to be able to navigate these essentially personality changes because you're about to behave in a different way and be unrecognizable to yourself. And so I think that, yeah, a lot of people, by the time they reach me are like, they're ready to go, but they're, and they're open to change. But I think that the bit that's important that I, that I like to offer people is, is like sort of that health coaching component, which is we're going to work through and navigate these ch- behavior changes, personality changes. And then the outcome is that the, the weight will disappear. And then the outcome is that, you know, you'll start eating different foods and your gut will fix itself or, you know, whatever thing it is, um, rather than just here's the pills, here's the supplements, go and take them and then beat them up next time they come back because they didn't take them all of the days, you know? So, yeah, I think there's definitely people that um, are raised in families, though, that are open to, you know, alternative medicine as well that are sort of, they just start there. They would just never walk into a hospital. So there's there's all types of people, but uh, I just try and make it just like my approach to my swimming career and going to uni, like, that's like the name of the podcast, how to not get sick and die. You know, I want people to not come into this process. Like it's so heavy and scary and, you know, we're having fun. We're making your body work better. This is awesome. This is great. You know? So I'm um, just like movement. Like you want to do it in a way that's fun for you. This is, we don't want to make this even more painful. So, so I really want to like, like to help people take that approach because I think that taking that energy, not to get too woo-woo, but taking that vibe towards your treatment or your healing or your recovery is so much better than being like, oh, I've got to go to the gym. I hate going to the gym. Like, or I've got to go and see my doctor. He's going to tell me how shit I've been, you know? <laughs> so I think that's really important. I know uh, one of the things that's come through as I've talked to you is when you think of the term health coach, you commonly mm-hmm. think 
scam social media. <laughs> Um, and, and I'm generalizing and, I, and I'm kind of uh, caricaturizing and you're laughing. I think you know where I'm going with this. 100%. <laughs> because, because, you know, I mean, I, I will be the first to admit if I want a good laugh, I'll open up Instagram and just start scro- scrolling down things because there is so much mi- misinformation and it's done a disservice because I think you've hit on the fact it's like, okay, you can see 50 people a day and you can say you need to do A, B, C or D. But 49 of them that'll work for, maybe, that 50th person, they need that little tweak or they need to go, okay, right now, this isn't the right situation. We need to get your husband or your wife or or something in there. How do you, when you've got friends who maybe you're not able to work with or people who contact you from other countries, how do you give them or what's the advice or information? How do you find somebody who isn't one of those kind of way off in left field? If you're not doing it my way, you're an idiot. Uh, Because clearly from what you're saying, this is not the path that you've decided to go down. (laughs) I think it's interesting you mentioned the health coach thing. So there's there's a lack of, but a really important distinction to make when it comes to health coaching. And that is that coaches support like the coach helps you find the solution and a lot of health coaches on Instagram and I do the same thing. Like there's so many health coaches on there that are just, they're literally just talking shit. <laughs> like they haven't been to uni, they haven't, and you don't have to go to uni. That's not the be all and end all, but they haven't been through some kind of mentorship program or, you know, long re- They haven't sat on PubMed, you know, as long as a lot of people have kind of thing and looked at real information, you know, and I think, Coaches, they, they step out there of their boundaries and their scope every single day. Like their coaches are meant to be there for support and guidance, not training, education, and instruction. That's, it's a really important distinction that, and, and if you have a coach that's becoming the consultant, you need to find an actual consultant, right? And, and those two should pair together. The, you know, it's, and, and it would kind of like be like a doctor pairing with a psychologist, right? It's like, you know, so it's like the person that's telling you what to do. And then the coach is the person that supports the behavior change. So yeah, I think coaches every single day try and be consultants or try and be naturopaths or try and be doctors. Um, and unfortunately, that's why they get it wrong so many times because they're not. Um, and, and some of them are, for, you know, highly educated for whatever reason and have been to uni and stuff like that. But, yeah, I think, you know, deciphering. And, and again, like you said, do have an interview with your doctor. If you want a health coach because you want support with your behavior change, interview them. Are they actually just going to tell you what to eat? Because that's not a coach. That's not what a coach is. Like a coach is going to guide you on the path to successful behavior and belief change, right? Which is a a very different kettle of fish. And and in my experience, like I'm a scientist, but arguably all, you know, I bounce between the scientist and educator and the coach because a lot of people know. I've never, I've never spoken to a room full of people that didn't know vegetables were probably a good idea, you know? Like they know it's not about more education. It's about the coaching component. But again, the coaching component is not the education. So I think for everybody listening that, you know, if you ever do come to a situation where you need a health coach or you need a coach involved in your your health plan, you really need to make sure they know what they're doing and they know where their scope 
you know, starts and ends type thing so that, yeah, it, it doesn't just turn into a laughing stock and your health is sent in the wrong direction, which is absolutely not what you want. <laughs> I think the one thing to add to that that you did that you didn't say, maybe you were being polite, is is the the good coaches are the ones who don't have an ego. They're the ones who say, geez, I don't know about that. We need to refer you to somebody else. And I think for anybody who wants to get better who or wants to have good health, when they've got a so-called expert or somebody who is an expert in a particular thing who says, I don't know, let's find somebody who knows out, who knows more. That goes more than them saying, well, I can help you with that because, you know, I, I saw something. And I, I think I think that's important to emphasize also. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one benefit to, and maybe you find this too, um, but for me having a podcast, like I meet and have so many amazing conversations with people all over the place that I get on the phone with someone that's inquiring about fixing something, you know, or they want to avoid surgery. And, and I can say that's, I, I'm not the best person for that, but I have like three or four people that I can, I'm going to message them and just check that they're the right person. And I think, yeah, that networking component. And I find on the sort of more alternative, natural the health side, there is, there's everybody's so interested in collaboration, like, like, and, and that's just, maybe it's just the community that I'm in. I'm sure there's egos here too, no doubt. But um, when it comes to Western medicine, it's like, yeah, that guy or the people that I know are like, yeah, I can fix anything. Whereas over here, everyone's like, that's not my specialty, but go see Maddie. Or I'll be like, that's not my specialty. I'll, I'll introduce you in an email to Ben, you know? And I think that approach is, Ego is the perfect word. There's just less ego and more people focused focused on patient outcomes rather than revenue. I think one of the things you hit on and I mentioned a few minutes ago that I wanted to come back on is it's very clear in your journey and your significant other's journey that you were proactive. And I think you built on this when you talked about and you gave a, a, a definition, you know, what, what, the, what a good definition of a health coach is, is you're not there to tell them what to do. You're there to encourage them to help them identify limitations or things that can help it. One of the problems or have you found a problem with some uh, people who come to you and they're looking for somebody, look, just tell me what to do, Maddie, as opposed to, look, I'm here to help you in your journey, but the most important person in the journey or the most important person for correcting this problem or getting this pr problem under control is you, not me or the person down the street who's also working with you. Yeah, well, and you've got to ascertain that in the beginning because, yeah, some people do need that really direct approach. And, and I would argue that I'm one of those people. Like, if it works and I know it works and you've got evidence that it works, then I should just have to do X, Y, Z to get it to work. And it comes back to just being that proactive personality. And, and that arguably come, goes back to the beginning of the story where my parents just were like, if it needs doing, just do it, you know. Um, and my mum's a very proactive person like that too. And so, yeah, I guess... It's it's I, maybe I was young enough to not be in the in the victim mindset yet uh, because I know going through the system for a long time you end up just giving up and fair enough too like you go to spend so much money on doctors appointments and health appointments and PTs and physios and just nothing changes and and you give up and you just become a victim you know your life's governed by the appointments that you have that you know inevitably aren't going to change very much and so there definitely are those people that are like just tell me what to do. And they just follow the list and it's awesome. However, there's also those people that want to be those people 
and they are just sort of they're in a moment of motivation and they're like yeah tell me tell me tell me and then you tell them and it, it's the same reason it hasn't worked for the last 20 years because you, you motivation is fleeting like you need a powerful underlying driver like the reason you get out of bed every morning you need to tie it to you know what do you truly care about and again that's where arguably a coach would come in too to to to, to tie your actions emotionally to, to something that you deeply care about um you know whether it be i want my kids to do well or you know i slave away all day to create enough money to feed the family like and and you know tying that well i need to get healthy because otherwise i can't go to work to make the money to feed the family you know and and but so yeah you get both people people that do just need it straight up and they're action-based people but or you need to help people find a way in their own life in the context of their experience to become an action-based person which isn't necessarily you know super hardcore like i'm gonna do all the things but it's like i'm comfortable this week changing one thing and seeing how it goes like that's a perfect place to start I know I always ask when I interview uh, personal trainers, especially endurance coaches, you know, do you ever interview a potential client and realize, okay, we're just not a good fit. I'm curious as a health coach, do you ever do that? And how do you approach that with the potential uh, client where you just realize, okay, I know there's just something here that we're not going to work well together. Well, for me, it there's two things. So it would depend on the severity of their disease and how complicated their treatment history has been. So that's, I guess, that's that, which isn't the health coach bit. That's definitely the scientist bit <laughs> um, sort of thing. And, and then I would refer them on. Or I would ask, and I always ask people about how they've tried to solve the problem before. Um, and, and if I can see a, a story that's repeating over time, I, I, I try and ascertain am I going to be different? Like, are you going to be different with me? Like, why me? Like, why do you want to work with me? Um, and if I feel like I'm like, oh, I don't think that this is going to work, I might suggest a psychologist or I might suggest somebody else to be like, hang on, there's been, there's a, there's a pattern that's been repeating here and the common denominator is you. So we need to figure out what's going on there before I can give you the, you know, the nutrition information, um, or the weight loss information because it will be useless until you solve that first bit. Um, and I, you know, I'm one of those people and, and maybe it's the same for you. I can imagine it is that if I have a client that's going through and not getting the results like I personally feel guilty I come home have the conversation you know with other people about like oh what am I doing wrong what am I doing wrong and and you know it often comes back to you know communicating with that person in the beginning and making sure that they're appropriately supported this is the right chapter of that their health journey to be on now um, but yeah I, do, I've, I have no issue referring anybody on because I'm more interested in them achieving because then that would make me feel happy rather than being with me, giving me their money and them not achieving because I personally carry that. I'm like, I feel horrible. Like, you know, I, I would be more inclined to give that person their money back and say, I've got someone, you know, for you to see. But yeah, there's definitely people that I've said, I don't think now is the right time for us to work together. And that's totally in the interest of them doing what's right for them. I think we're doing this recording at the opportune time. We're in the week between Christmas and New Year's and I suspect in Australia, it's just like the U.S. It's New Year's resolutions are the big, big thing. <laughs> yes. uh, and I like what you said. You said, you know, people have to realize and you can ascertain this through conversations with them as a health coach or, you know, a psychologist or, or a psychiatrist, whatever it is. Is this the right time? And, and when you were saying that, I was flashing back. Uh, I, I mentioned Dr. Ian Dunnikin that I interviewed as a, a sleep researcher and some of the changes or some of the things that he was talking about at that time, I realized for me personally, I couldn't do that because I had an epileptic dog. 
So my sleep was going to be affected because every time she moved, I thought that there was going to be a seizure. So I'd pop up right in bed, sympathetic nervous system going crazy. And yeah. I mean, but I still remember writing these things down and, and say, boy, these would be really good. And it took about a year. And unfortunately, I wish it'd been a lot longer than that. The dog, the dog passed. And it's amazing when you incorporated those things. I mean, it's kind of like when I first heard them, it's like, oh, yeah, I know this will work, but it's not feasible right now. And yeah. I think in many instances, people say, and we do for my one podcast, uh, Fit Lab Pittsburgh, we do movement tip and lifestyle hacks uh, videos, one minute videos. And one of the videos we made a couple of weeks ago is why does it have to be the new year? to do a resolution or do a behavior change. I mean, the new year, if you're if you've got family family, if you've got work things, if you've got kids home from from college or university, you know, you you've got all these things going on. It's like, okay, now I'm going to make a big change or a small change. Maybe that isn't the time to do it. Maybe the time to do it is when you're on vacation, when you have more time to think about it or Maybe you just were, were out talking with a friend and they said, you know, I really like walking every morning. Would you meet me and walk with me? What is the mentality, do you think, where people say, okay, I want to make a change. And when you've talked to them and you realize with other things that are going on, this isn't the right time. How do you communicate with them? And, and what kind of a feedback have you gotten from people who've come back to work with you when you've told them this isn't the right time, come back again? Yeah, I have no, I have no shame in being super direct, um, and, and I think that's something that is both good and bad. But um, I've, you know, I have no issue saying, look, it sounds like you're overwhelmed with things at the minute. This is just going to be another thing, and then you're going to do all of the things, you know, you know, terribly, and you'll achieve nothing in your life in any area. So um, if they seem super busy, or it's the wrong time, or they've just started a new job, or you know, like there's a there's a a, a primary focus that's in their life that's taking their attention and this can't be their primary focus. All the other things are still relevant. We all have multi-dimensional lives, but, um, and focuses, but if like, you know, if you're in routine, those things are on autopilot for the most part, and then you can have a primary focus. But if you've got new things going on, um, then, you know, maybe now's not the time. And I'll just say like, when do you think, you know, when do you think would be a good time to reconnect? I'll just put a reminder in my diary. I'll message you in a month. Um, and we'll just have another conversation. So, um, I have no issue. And I think, I mean, I understand the new year's resolution thing because, you know, Christmas is about you know, a lot of people do gifts and, and there's a lot of new things happening and it's a new year and like, it's all about new, new, new. So people want a new version of them. Um, but it's something like 80% of, uh, you know, new year's resolutions are forgotten about by February. Um, so like, I, I love the concept, like everybody seems to, but it doesn't really play out in reality. So, um, you know, maybe, again waiting till the well for us in australia so now is the big summer holiday so it's summer i'm, I'm right now I sp yesterday i spent one hour in the sun and forgot how white i was and literally i've been more i'm more burnt than i ever have been in my life stupid move but the point is we're on our summer holidays right now so maybe for people in australia waiting until february when the kids are back to school for the new school year and you're back into that routine, then you can have a, a primary focus, you know? And so it's the same for anybody. Like, wait until you can make this your primary focus and that most of the other things in your life are sort of automated or at least routine-based and then focus on this. Because when it's your health, and especially if you've got a chronic disease or a severe, uh, you know, reaction to, to whatever it is in your life, diet, nutrition, behavior, relationships, whatever it is, that stuff needs time and attention. And and, and, they, and the types, some of the people that I do push away uh, from working with me are people that are like, 
I want to lose 20 kilos in the next eight weeks. You know, like that is so that the diet culture industry has destroyed metabolisms the globe over and particularly damaged uh, body image uh, perception and stuff like that for women, like men as well, but particularly for women. And I work mainly with women. And so if, if I've got someone that's hardcore on the diet culture, like, nah, I've got a wedding. I need to be 30 kilos lighter in this amount of time. I'm like, I'm not the person for you because I'm interested in your longevity and your behavior long term not contributing to a disease because we went did something silly today or in the next eight weeks so i'm definitely you've got to have it as your primary focus and also you need to work on building this into your lifestyle so this just becomes another routine in your life over time and i have a model that i call the one tweak a week like we just make one small tweak each week progressively towards sustainable change because if we're going to jump in the deep end on day one it's not going to work it's not sustainable so um yeah i think People need to make sure that it's their primary focus um, and and not to dive in when they've got other primary focuses that require, you know, into their attention. And I know you mentioned this a little bit when you're talking about the traditional medical model or, you know, that not necessarily the individual physicians, but the idea is to get you in the system. So you're always in the system and at least in the U.S. so they can cannot collect large amounts of insurance. Somebody finds you. And I know this would vary from problem to problem. What's the typical amount of time they they uh, use you for or hire you for? Is this something? And I'm joking when I say this. It's like, oh, it's it's a lifetime commitment. You know, I, I, I remember <laughs> so, somebody uh, being asked who who was kind of on the flim flam side of the, of the medical field, saying, you know, how long do I need to see you? And the response was, in all seriousness, as long as you want to be well, which. It's a great response. <laughs> it's, it's a great response for, for a revenue stream, but it sounds yeah. like you might have a slightly different response. So when somebody says, you know, how long do we work work together? What's what's the response? Because I, I know it varies from uh, client to client. Absolutely. So minimum for me would be eight weeks and then anything from eight weeks up to about six months uh, working with me. And that's simply because in order for us to make this normal for you, we need enough time to make the change, fall off the bandwagon a few times, get back on, you know, like all these things are going to happen. And we take the one tweak a week approach so that it reduces the likelihood that you'll feel the need to not do it. Like it's so, we're making so many subtle changes. And and I guess it's like anything. So the most important thing I find people need is accountability. They need that accountability and support. And I think that there's this sort of dance between helping people create the healthy life like that they want and and my goal is for them to be able to do that on their own so that you know I don't I in an ideal world I don't want return clients because I know that what I've done has worked if you didn't come back and life's good you know that's amazing um but at the same time we all need to come back and touch you know touch home base every now and then and it's the same for me like especially through 2020 my home gym set up it's set up amazingly now like i've got this perfect routine it's working really well however i know that competitive nature in me that is like you come on you know you can do a bit more um it needs to go down to the gym needs to book in a pt session from, from time to time to just touch base and be like all right, here's the standard. I actually did slip a little bit because I didn't have any accountability and it just reminds me. So yeah, anywhere from eight weeks to six months is, is how long I work with people. Um, and then it's just sort of touching base periodically after that. Um, that, you know, because like for weight loss, for instance, the recidivism rate is 98%, you know, across the, the world, you know, and, and that's generally going to be Western medical data, but 
The idea is that I want to also collect that data to make sure what I'm doing doesn't follow the same terrible outcomes, you know. So I touch base with people, um, but in order for them to get the result they're looking for, yeah, eight weeks to six months, somewhere in there usually sits sits nicely for people. And I think you hit that also. No, ideally, no return visits or, or rather no return customers. Exactly. <laughs> maybe maybe occasional checkups. Hey, can, can I talk to you for feeding? Yeah, things pop up. Yeah, like if somebody's moved house and they've got a mold infestation or they've got a new partner and they've they've started adding different foods into their diets and, that you know, things happen, you know, life happens. So occasional catch-ups, are, I think, are, are useful, just like checking in with the GP once a year to just make sure that your body's still working okay because things change. It's, uh, you know, it happens. We're talking with Maddie Lansdowne. One final question or quick area of topic that I always want to ask when somebody else has a podcast. You've got this going on, which very clearly sounds it's a, uh, it's a great way to promote wellness and give people accountability. Why podcasting? And how did you get into the podcasting aspect of this? That is a great question. Um, so in the beginning, I was like, I realized that I was like, okay, I want to I want to start a business because I've got this idea about how to do health and nutrition that I think will help a lot of people. And so I started, you know, it's kind of the same way that I did my research for um for finding out all all about the other mo- medical modalities and I just started researching like business coaches and how to get started and you know I'm not from a businessy family in any way so it was all all homework based and I did just looking around and I I started the Instagram page and I did this and I did that and and then I heard some person on YouTube say what are your strengths just do that and I was like well I've never been able to shut up really ever. So, um, <laughs> and I'm, I've been a musician for a lot of my life, so I'm no stranger to the stage. I was, you know, I was that sort of guy that was like school captain, sports captains, like, because I was just loud, really. That was really the main reason. And so I thought, oh, a podcast would be perfect. I, lo- I get so passionate and worked up about these health topics and I love hanging out with people just like swimming, love being social. It's a big social hang for me Like, and I get to learn in the process. So I picked a podcast because I was like, Instagram feels like a labor to me, a labor of love, but a labor, you know, all of these things feel very laborsome for me. But if I get into a conversation, I'm like, I'm in my element. So for me, podcast just made sense. I'm always sort of, you know, shouting the, the latest information I've learned down somebody's, uh, you know, ears on a podcast. And I love that because the podcast is growing and it's been really successful. And um, so, yeah, it seems to be the right fit for me. But that's how I got into it. I just heard somebody say, do what you're good at. And I was like, I don't know if I'm good at it, but I definitely haven't stopped doing it. <laughs> We've been talking with Matty Lansdowne. He is a health coach. He has the podcast, How to Not Get Sick and Die. Check that out. We'll have <laughs> contact information for Instagram and Facebook at our show notes. Matty, once again, I had a great time when I was on your podcast. Really enjoyed your definition and explanation of a, what a health coach should be, which is different from what I've heard from anybody else and makes a lot more sense. So thank you very much for your time. You are more than welcome. And thanks for hanging out, Ben. I appreciate your time. And, and thanks for being on my show as well. It was such a great podcast. So yeah, I'd love to do this again. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live wherever you find podcasts or on our website, www.moving2live.com. 
Please tell your friends about Moving to Live and check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H dot com, which focuses on people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority because movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Until next time, keep on moving.